0: Welcome to the Nerd Party.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland, and I'm back again with my best friend and co-host, Asia Bonilla.
0: Hi everyone.
1: We're a new podcast on the Nerd Party Network rereading young adult literature, and we're sharing our favorite books with our best friend, i.e. each other. And we're going to wrap up our mini intro arc to our new show today.
0: Yeah, we decided to record three episodes to complete our first book and to give you listeners some more content to get to know us and know our show. Today is part three of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, and we will be discussing chapter 16 to the ending. As you know, by listening to the first two episodes, the person who's reading the book for the first time, Charles in this case, We'll give a brief summary of the reading for anyone who didn't have time to read or just wants a refresher. And then we will really get into the discussion for the end of our first book.
1: Yes, but before I get into the summary, I just want to say how exciting this is. We're about to finish our first book. And starting next week, we'll be releasing an episode each week. And that's going to be just, you know, such a treat. I can't wait. And like after this episode, we'll be off to the races.
0: Yes, I cannot wait to continue the Percy Jackson series and all the other books we're going to be discussing during our time on this show.
1: Yeah, we have so many fun ones queued up. Ones i picked out, ones you've picked out. So Mm -hmm. let's, yeah, I can't wait. Okay, I'm done being sentimental. I'll get into the summary. So we start in chapter 16 and it's a very long chapter and there's a lot going on. But essentially, the crew makes it to Las Vegas and then they squander five days of their lead in this magical casino. And then in chapter 17, they get to L.A., they talk to the Naryad, and they're looking for the entrance to the underworld. But first, they get attacked by Procrustus. In chapter 18, they're able to enter the underworld, and they trick Charon and the Furies and the Cerberus, and they manage to get all the way into the fields of Asphodel. And then in chapter 19, the gang gets to meet Hades, and the bolt of uh, Zeus's power bolt is in Percy's bag which frames him in front of Hades. But then turns out Hades is also looking for his Helm of Darkness, which was also stolen. And the gang uses Percy's pearls, which he received from the Nereid, to escape. But they leave Percy's mom in this sort of limbo suspended state with Hades. In chapter 20, the crew shows up on the beach in LA, and Ares is there because he framed Percy, and he thought Percy was going to die in the underworld. He and Percy fight. Percy actively uses his control of the water and he manages to even wound Ares who flees and that leaves Percy in possession with the bolt and uh, Hades' helm of darkness and then Percy gives the helm back to Hades and heads over to Olympus. In chapter 21, he goes to Olympus, he meets Poseidon and Zeus and he returns the lightning bolt. He talks to his dad Poseidon and he finds out that his mother has been restored to life by Hades as a thanks for returning the helm. Then Percy heads back to Camp Half-Blood. And finally, in chapter 22, the whole gang is at Camp Half-Blood celebrating the end of the summer. Grover leaves as a searcher now that he's got his license. Annabeth decides to try living with her dad again, and Percy gets lured away by Luke. Luke tries to kill Percy with a poisonous scorpion, And Percy survives, Luke flees, and Percy decides to spend the next year away from the camp and come back next summer. And that's our whole first book! I can't believe we finished it, but here we are, first book done. I'll jump into my first impressions, and then I expect you'll have a lot, Asia. But for one thing, I thought that the ending was maybe a little anticlimactic or rushed, but that's probably just because, as we've been discussing on the show, there's a lot of action in these books, and I'm a little overwhelmed by it. But my biggest impression is probably that, yay, mom is alive, and wow, we were right to respect to suspect Luke. He was so shady. Also, when Annabeth said that she would fight with Percy even if their parents fought, like that she would stay on Percy's side even if their parents fought, that was so sweet. And every time she calls him seaweed brain, it's too flirty. Anyway. Since we finished the book today, Asia, I want to hear what you remembered or didn't, etc.
0: Okay. Well, for me, I honestly, I think I got a lot of the plot confused with how it was portrayed in the movie versus the book. For instance, I remembered the ending when we finally like fully find out that Luke was the betrayer. It was totally different from what I remembered. I think the movie, he shows up at Olympus or something. So I didn't remember the scene with the scorpion at all. I think I keep getting it confused because I've only read this book once. It was back when I was 11 years old and the movie came out a lot later than that. So I don't fully remember and the movie's definitely more fresh in my memory. I would agree with you that the ending was maybe a little anticlimactic, but I think I feel that way, especially because I did know how it was gonna end. I knew what was coming. I knew that Luke was gonna be the spy. I knew that Percy was going to choose to not stay at camp for all year round. So I remembered a lot of those kind of things, but just not all the big details. Uh, I do think that the biggest reveal was that Percy did get his mom back after um, returning Hades' helm from Ares, because when they escape the underworld with the pearls, Percy confirms that it must be his mother that he loses from the prophecy. But because she ends up alive, what or who did Percy fail to save? That's definitely one of my biggest questions for the end of the book. Now we can discuss this. We can discuss this more in a little bit, but let's start with diving into chapter 16, where we started for this episode. So in chapter 16, Ares tells Percy that his mother is not dead and that someone is holding her hostage. The obvious answer is it's probably Hades since he seems to want something, the lightning bolt from Percy, and we've gotten clear indicators that it's probably him. But now that we know that Ares was actually using Percy and gave him the lightning bolt, maybe Ares made sure to give Percy this information to further fuel Percy's desire to face Hades and complete his mission that that Ares wanted him to go down to the underworld and complete all of that.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's probably true because Ares very explicitly in chapter 20, he says, I wanted there to be a war between all of my older brothers because they, you know, that would be better for me if they all were fighting. He would profit off of that as the God of war. And I did finally like that we got that confirmation because we've been sort of operating under the assumption that Percy's mom is not dead. I mean, when she died i'm using air quotes when she died she dissolved into a golden light like we knew for a fact that she hadn't just died died so i like that we got that official confirmation and you brought up something when you're talking about the pearls because we know that there's a cost to the pearls and we are led to believe that it's just that they leave his mom but because his mom is saved and you're right maybe he has yet to fail to save someone as per the prophecy. So, do you think that's something we're going to have to like carry on into the next book?
0: I think so. I have more thoughts on it a little bit later, especially when we start talking about Chronos and what I think. But yes, I do think this the prophecy will continue into the next book.
1: This is how you know we prep separately because I wrote in my notes, I was like Yay, chapter 22. We finally resolved the entire prophecy. We're done yeah, with I this. Saw.
0: I saw. I'm not 100% sure from what I remember, but I think it's not over.
1: Ugh, I was really hoping it was over. You guys will see how much I hate prophecy. Anyway, back to Aries. Aries gave Percy gifts, and I talked about this last episode, how the Nereid told Percy not to trust the gifts, and I was like, Luke has given a gift. We shouldn't trust those gifts but Ares gives gifts, and they turn out not to be trustworthy either. So it actually could have been that the Nereid was talking about Ares' gifts, not Luke's. And then I started going into Extrapolation World. You know how the demigods can sneak into Olympus? They can go into certain places because they're sort of undetectable by the gods? Yeah. I was wondering if maybe the Nereid didn't even know about Luke's treachery. She was just talking about Aries' gifts.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I just want to point out, I always miss the warning about the gifts. I didn't see it either before with Luke. But now with Aries, that does make a lot more sense, especially since Aries' gift turns out to be Zeus's lightning bolt. It's a way bigger deal. It's what the whole book is about. And that could also be true of them not knowing about Luke, since no one even knows that he's working with Kronos. And we don't even know until the very end of the book. And since the warning is given to Percy soon before, they meet Ares and do the um, the job of...
1: With the Hephaestus' trap.
0: Yeah, with Hephaestus' trap, it would make sense that the warning would be about him since Luke... The shoes were a long time ago yeah. and the warning came afterwards. So that, that does make sense.
1: Which is so crazy, but also great world building. Again, sort of these demigod sneaking powers. Yeah. Which... They're sort of undetectable because they're not fully a god. It makes perfect sense with the world that Riordan's been building so far. And I want to talk more about demigod powers, specifically Percy's powers. We do get confirmation that he can control the drying instantly, the breathing underwater. We've been talking in previous episodes whether it was sort of a one-off or Poseidon gave it to him that time. But we do get confirmation, Percy, multiple times Decides whether or not he wants to dry off instantly like when he walks into the ocean, and he's totally fine Or when they come up after the pearls and he's like we should be wet because it would be very suspicious if we were dry and came up on land He has control over that which is awesome You know just Poseidon perks. We should start that as a hashtag (laughs) Percy power Poseidon perks. I'm here all day ladies and gentlemen and In chapter 16, my notes were Percy now can talk to animals. Wait, no, Percy's only talking to zebras because zebras are like horses. Wait, I'm pretty sure zebras aren't horses. Okay. Then I checked. Turns out zebras are basically as close to horses as donkeys. They're relatively cousins. So does that mean that Percy can talk to donkeys, yes or no?
0: I would guess yes, probably. Since they're like cousins, it would be the same.
1: Will we get this in a future book?
0: No idea, but. We'll cross our fingers and hope so that Percy will meet a donkey soon.
1: I really hope so. There are a lot of donkeys in mythology. I feel like that's not a far off request.
0: Okay, we'll keep that in mind. We'll take note. But I also wanted to talk about Percy's nightmare while they're in the truck with the animals. In Percy's nightmare, he hears this evil voice in this bottomless scary pit. And we now know that that's Kronos, I'm assuming, talking to Luke. And Percy discusses how he recognizes the spy's voice, but he can't see who the spy is, which also would kind of point towards Luke as somebody he knows. So we're assuming that this spy is Luke. The exchange refers to the iris messaging between him and Percy. Luke gives Kronos uh, basically what happened. Luke mentions what he stole directly, referring the lightning bolt, we would assume, and Kronos says how he intervened. So maybe Luke stole the boat of his own accord and Hades, or not Hades, Kronos stepped in to make his plan work, which we find out later that that's not necessarily was the case. But this voice also mentions that he's waiting for two items. So what is that second item? And as we learn later on, that it's Hades' helm of darkness, the two of the most powerful godly objects. Cronos notices Percy's presence and confirms that Percy brought himself there through his dream. And Cronos reveals to Percy that Hades is holding Percy's mother prisoner in the underworld. At the end, Luke talks about how he started dreaming of Cronos. This is at the very end of the book. And that's how he started communicating and working with him. So maybe because they have this connection through dreams, Percy was able to hack into the dream somehow. So I just found that entire scene from looking back on it from finishing the book. There was just a lot more was revealed because at first I thought, well, it's Hades talking to Luke. But no, it wasn't Hades. It was Kronos.
1: Yeah, I feel like all of the dreams would make more sense now that we know the ending. Like if we were to go back and reread all the dreams, they would make more sense if we now that we have the the context of who the actual villain is. And I think that there's something knowing that Kronos can infiltrate Luke's dreams, and then that Percy kind of has the ability to get in on that. But then that Kronos can even sense Percy's ability. There's something particularly omnipotent about Chronos, Like he knows way too much. He's way too powerful. And we know that he's a –
0: Well, that's even – Sorry to interrupt you. No, go for it. That's even like when Percy and Ares fight on the beach, when Ares hesitates and doesn't kill Percy, they describe like this – Like I don't even know how to describe it, but this air comes across them of like, Terror and sadness and darkness, which they assume is from Kronos, which makes him hesitate and Ares doesn't kill Percy. So, like, yes, this um, he is like this omniscient character of like all knowing, all powerful. So, very scary for sure.
1: Yeah, we're gonna not like Kronos the Titan at all. And you know, if he'd gotten his hands on those two godly objects, he probably would be. We probably wouldn't have any more books to go for, so better off. I want to call back something from last episode, Arachne. Remember how we were talking about the spiders and I was like, Annabeth is freaking out because of the mechanical spiders and Hephaestus trap. And then we got that resolution right afterwards. And what I really particularly liked, and I wonder if you noticed it, was that Percy was the one who noticed what the problem was. So in the conversation Annabeth was like I'm really sorry about how I freaked out and Percy was like I get it it's because of Arachne right and that's because Percy is slowly sort of developing into this world he's slowly understanding she is Athena's daughter therefore she can't handle spiders and we've shown we've had growth from Percy which I really appreciate because earlier on he's like why can't we be friends and she's like because the gods control us And he now sort of understands or he's getting to understand why things are sort of related to the gods and he's using his knowledge, which I really appreciate. Yeah. I also wanted to call back something else that you you mentioned. You were talking last episode about how some of it is just really funny. I can't remember, but you mentioned a really good example of irony in the last episode. And so I was on the lookout for it because... As we know, I've been just looking for the action, but when they get into that animal truck, the f- animal's food is perfectly mismatched. Like the zebra has the steak, and the lion has like thistles or something like that,
0: or some kind yeah. of vegetable or something. Yeah. Like
1: oh, that. turnips, turnips, turnips. Yeah. And it's like that was some very basic irony. The two opposite foods. All they had to do was swap them, and then we had another really great episode of or moment of that sort of funny irony when they get to Olympus and Zeus is sitting on a throne of pure platinum and Poseidon is in like a fishing
0: chair. Well, also how they describe Poseidon's wearing like Tommy Bahama top, like flip-flops, just a surfer dude and Zeus is in like a nice pinstripe suit, like just the direct contrast of the two of them.
1: And then you have to imagine them as like super sized humans because they're also like in their God size. So they're like way bigger yeah, in these little giants, oversized chairs that are completely mismatched. And they're just sitting there alone in a room. I like, I was chuckling reading that one out loud.
0: Wow. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Found some funniness in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I was also just going to mention that when they were in the Lotus casino, Midway through reading that, I remembered that part specifically and how they were gonna waste time there because you lose track of time. So I remember that. That was a detail I slightly remembered halfway through. And then the biggest thing after that whole scene is how Percy somehow gets Aries' backpack as they're leaving. There's no real explanation. Percy even says, I don't, I don't know how it's on my back now, but it's there. And after finishing, I would think that since Ares had used the enchantment of the lightning bolt with the sheath to conceal it, I would assume he did something to it so that Percy couldn't lose it. He couldn't separate from the backpack. So I think that's an interesting thing to look back on.
1: Kind of like Riptide. Yeah. The way Riptide can't be lost. And I think that I have something similar later on talking about how I appreciated the continuity of sort of the disguised godly weapons like the fact that he could transfigure the sheath the back the sheath into a backpack and that he could sort of control the sheath and the bolt themselves and yeah while you bring that up that's totally another level of that sort of context of these special weapons that i didn't even notice but that's so true like he pro- he definitely made it so that percy couldn't lose it like that makes perfect sense mm-hmm and we're just jumping all over the place today because this is also in chapter 16. There's too much in chapter 16.
0: Yeah, there's a lot.
1: I was writing the summary and I was like, I can't do this. There's too many things. But in chapter 16, we have the first time the shoes sprout um, of their own volition. Mm-hmm. Like the Grover's shoes, They the wings come out and everyone's like, "Hmm, that's strange, but it doesn't really affect them. And then it happens again in 18, right when they're above the pit and the shoes are trying to take Grover down the pit. And I was like, What did I tell you? Don't trust Luke's shoes. Even though now we've established that it was probably the Nereid talking about Aries's gifts. But wow, Luke's gift, so evil. And I do wish that our like super sleuth team would have maybe noticed hmm, maybe we should take off these shoes after they keep turning on when we don't tell them to. But they are 12, so maybe we can give them some yeah, slack.
0: Yeah, that was something I also noticed. I think it was in Chapter 16. They specifically specify the age difference. So I know I didn't know exactly, but they're 12. Luke is 19. Luke is an adult, yeah, <laughs> and he's yeah. and he's tricking these children.
1: Like a legal adult, and they are minors.
0: Like just terrible. But yeah, with the shoes... Luke admits it in the end and says that he gave the shoes to Percy so they would literally fly him into the entrance to Tartarus to go to Kronos, but he did not anticipate that Percy would give them to Grover, and thank goodness Percy did.
1: Yeah. And then I like the cute resolution of Grover, the fact that the shoes never really fit him is like what saved him because he was – he's a satyr Mm -hmm. or a fawn. They call them satyrs in this book, right? Yeah, I call, sometimes they're called fawns, but the fact that he was not human is what saved his life. Like, thank goodness. Also, again, another cute thing that I want to mention from chapter 16, Annabeth at one point says, oh my gods, plural. Mm -hmm. And it's not remarked upon because of course in Annabeth's world, it's oh my gods. (laughs) So cute.
0: Since you mentioned that world building, I have some... Darker world building, not necessarily cute. But when they go into the lobby for the underworld, they discover that the dead people have to pay to go down into the underworld. They have to wait until they have money. Otherwise, they'll stay in the lobby indefinitely.
1: Do we think that's like a very slight attack on sort of middle ages Christian church sort of? Purchasing of indulgences, having to buy your way into heaven or out of purgatory.
0: I guess. Maybe.
1: I didn't think about it like that. I was just like, oh, yeah. Of course. In this in this book series, of course, they have to buy their way to go into hell. But I wonder if I wonder if Riordan was making a little bit of a Christianity jab, a little 99 theses.
0: Maybe. But also just when they got into the underworld, I took notes on after that whole scene with Annabeth uh, – giving the – what's the big dog called again? The Cerberus. Cerberus. Giving him the red ball and everything. To me, it just was so easy for them to get into the underworld, for these children to get in, to just sneak in. But I guess it makes sense in the end how Hades was waiting for them. He wanted them (sighs) to show up. He was expecting them. So, of course, he wouldn't have made it any harder for them to enter.
1: Yeah, I was, the whole time we were reading this section of entering the underworld as living characters, especially as a young boy and girl, I was thinking about another book series that we're going to read a couple book series down, and I was reading it earlier on in the pandemic, I was rereading the Golden Compass series, which I know you haven't read and I'm going to share with you Mm -hmm. once we get there, but we have a very similar scene and they have a much harder time getting into the underworld and there's a little more tension as to whether or not they're going to make it out alive. I do feel like we got that. Like, Caron. he does say, like, you're not coming out. Like, you can pay me all you want. I'll let you in, but you're not going to survive. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that it was kind of like, oh, Annabeth outsmarted Fluffy and, like...
0: And that was it that was it and they were in and they just walked for miles
1: yeah that and that's what reminded me of when we get to it's not the golden compass it's the Amber spyglass it's the third book in the series his dark materials there's a very similar entering of the underworld and walking for miles vibe but it's a little more serious like they have to they you'll see we'll get there but there's quite a big cost to entering the underworld whereas here it was like let's just waltz in we have to pay twenty drachmas to get in mm-hmm. another thing that we got in that chapter or really close to it which i'm relieved about is a little bit of resolution on talia so the full story is grover was sent to pick up talia who was zeus's daughter and they hook up with annabeth and luke on the way which means that luke was again he was older and annabeth was younger and they all are getting on their way to Camp Half Blood. Talia dies and Grover's punishment is that he's not made a searcher and then he has to go after Percy yada yada yada. And we ha- we'd had that hinted at throughout the whole book, but I'm really glad we got that resolution. And apparently we're not getting resolution on our prophecy, but at least this I'm glad we've got that.
0: Well, I did remember that all the stories about Talia, but all I'm going to say is that this is not the last time she's mentioned in the series. That is something I specifically remember from the series. But no spoilers. So that's all I have to say.
1: Lord. Oh, my goodness. You know, we got resolution on how she got to Camp Half-Blood and why Grover and Annabeth are so weird. So Mm -hmm. I'll take that. But, yeah. Oh, and here we are. Going through our notes, got to where I was going to mention the world building of Aries being able to disguise the sheath, which we already talked about because you already made me think about that. Look at that. But in that, I do want to talk about some world building a little later on when they come up from the underworld and the people on the beach see them and they imagine them having guns. And I do think that, and Aries says something like, humans will believe anything. And I do think that there is something more to this mist. And I think this is maybe more of a meta theme that Riordan might be going towards. But it's sort of implied that the power of the, part of the power of the mist is that humans rationalize it rather than than the mist comes and humans see something completely different. It's more of humans might have the chance to see the trident or the bolt or the sword. And that makes so little sense that they just turn it off. And that then they revert to something that they can expect, two people waving guns on a beach. But I want to know what you think. Maybe I'm reading too far into that, but I do feel like that could be a a larger theme that people are blinded to things around them so they rationalize them.
0: No, I think I think that makes sense, especially with how they've described the mist since there has been incidences where people actually see what's happening and then... You know, they haul him off to the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, But I overall just think it's interesting how Riordan rationalized all these concepts of the Greek world into our present-day America. And I really think it elevates the story and makes it more tangible to us as readers, especially for someone like me who doesn't really like straight-up fantasy books. So I really enjoy that, how he can incorporate Fantasy elements into the real world. So I enjoyed that.
1: I like how you say present day America. This book was written in 2006.
0: It was almost
1: 15 years ago. And we're it was like, basically, yep, two people on a beach with guns. They couldn't
0: use phones or anything. So it's not like it was any different. <laughs> They'd be the same now. They wouldn't be using iPhones or anything. Yeah.
1: Almost a decade and a half later. And we're like, yeah, seems perfectly normal for two people to have guns on the street. Okay, moving right along. Let's move on to some more Percy growth, which is at the same scene where Percy doesn't hold the grudge against Hades. He gives the helm back, which is such a noble and heroic trait. Like, of course, Percy would give the helm back. But I do feel like that's not, that's a change. I feel like earlier Percy, chapter one Percy, who's, you know, lashing out all the time. I feel like he would hold a grudge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, At the very end, when he gets Medusa's head back in the package, he has to make this decision of whether he's going to turn Gabe into a statue or just let it go, move on, let his mom make the decision, which I do agree with you. That's even more showing growth of how he chooses to arguably make the more heroic decision, even though in When He Makes the Decision, he says that he thinks the heroic thing would be to get the revenge. All he has the chance. Yeah. That was interesting.
1: Yeah. Oh, Percy's growing up. A little (laughs) 12-year-old genius. I know we started talking about Kronos a little earlier, but I feel like we should give him a little more time. So just for people who don't remember their Greek mythology from ninth grade or whenever we cover this, middle school, I feel like we –
0: I think I covered – well, I covered Greek history in elementary school.
1: I feel like I did mythology in like sixth grade. Sixth grade, yeah. Classical mythology. And then I feel like I read the Odyssey in 10th grade. So then we did a lot of like God studies then. Ninth grade, I think,
0: for me. But yeah.
1: So, but for those of you who don't remember, <laughs> Kronos is a Titan and he's the young one. Well, he's a young Titan, but he's the one who gives birth to Zeus, Poseidon. Hades, Hera, and a bunch of the other gods, and he's the one who eats all of his children, except Zeus. Zeus kills him and chops him up and frees his siblings, who of course couldn't die in their dad's stomach because they were undying gods, and he is a very, very, very bad guy. And he's chopped up into a bunch of pieces, living in Tartarus, I guess, but now he's sort of healing is the word Percy uses. Did I get that right?
0: Yeah. So this is where I was saying with the prophecy that I don't think it's over, especially um, the line where they say that he will, Percy
1: fail, to will fail to save what, to save matters, what most. matters
0: most in the end. I think that that is referencing that maybe that he's hasn't prevented kronos from rising to power which i don't know necessarily what he could have what he could have done differently to fully prevent it maybe like kill luke or something since luke seems to be his hero in the making the one he's using for everything since he can't do anything in the pit but yeah i think that is ultimately like i think this is definitely going to continue into if not just the next book but just continue through the series that Kronos has been biding his time and waiting to take revenge on the gods to try to regain power.
1: And you bring that up about the the prophecy not being complete. So just remember when we got the pearls and from the nereid that will let Percy escape and Annabeth and Grover are both like, don't use them, there's always a price. Was the price that... Percy's that they had to leave his mom because that's kind of what Percy says. He's like, the three, we think that that is resolved.
0: I don't know because you could say that the price is you could say the price is Percy doesn't know if his mom will be saved or not. Yeah. Ultimately, she is saved, but he didn't know that when they left. Yeah. But it could also be that because she was saved, that wasn't the price. And there could be this some other unknown. Another
1: thing to carry on to the next book. (laughs) We're going to be tracking so much into this next book. I mean, I – you know, it does make for a more complicated and layered story if there are more things that carry over. So good on you, Riordan. But I'm also like, can we just get a resolution?
0: I mean, if anything, <clears throat> if anything, from what I remember, if this prophecy doesn't continue, there's definitely other prophecies.
1: Oh, yeah. I.
0: But, yeah, I'm just not sure if this one is – I just – because to me, it doesn't feel finished, but – I could be overthinking it.
1: Cue my next note. Prophecy is finished, except the final line. But we get a resolution of that in chapter 22. And we do. So I literally, after we got through his mother, him leaving his mother, I was like, okay, the only thing we're missing is the betrayer. And we're like, pretty sure it's Luke. And And then we get through the end of chapter 21 and he talks to Poseidon and he hasn't been betrayed yet. We're like, it's definitely gonna be Luke. It's the only character he hasn't seen yet. (laughs) And I literally wrote, I don't want this prophecy to be carrying over but you know what? I'm over it. If it does, it does. So we get to Luke and one, it's already very off kilter. We already know something's wrong. We already have all these suspicions about Luke that we've been talking about. He's being super weird. So we can already feel there's this tension. And then... The sword. Can we talk about Luke's sword? So evil. Even Percy's like, wait, we don't make swords that can hurt mortals. And Luke's like, look at my new sword. It can hurt gods and mortals. Ha ha ha. And I was (laughs) like, wow, that's so evil. And then he calls it backbiter, like backstabbing, like betrayer. Like that was so on the nose.
0: Yes, that's definitely, I like that play on words. But I think it is just sad because Luke was working for Kronos the whole time because he felt unappreciated and looked over by the gods. And I think this is often a theme, I feel like, with villainous characters because they feel betrayed or failed by their society. So they turn their back on society. So in this instance, Luke felt worthless and unimportant, first with the assignment of his quest, which he says was the same thing Thing that Hercules did. To be
1: fair, it did sound pretty dumb.
0: Yeah, it was like, was it stealing an apple or something?
1: Yeah, and doesn't Hercules have like 12 tasks, something ridiculous?
0: So I get that. So he's like, you could have given me something better, but okay. But he also failed at the quest that was supposed to be easy, and he, that's how he got his big scar, and he hasn't been given another one since. So he just feels like they're like, you failed, you know, we're done with you, they've given up on him. But overall for Luke's character, which is I feel like sometimes the case, he's still a weak person, though, because it's not like he's taking charge of doing this on his own. He's taking commands from another powerful being, Kronos. And I feel like he just really doesn't know how to think for himself. He needs somebody to be in charge of him. And because he feels rejected by the gods, he's turning to the Titans now.
1: Yeah. And I feel like we have a direct comparison to another character who is less weak. We have Annabeth, who is seven years his junior, but she's been at Camp Hapla the same amount of time and she is so self-motivated. Like, obviously, yes, she wants to impress her mom and yes, she kind of wants to impress her dad too, but she has never gotten a quest and she's always putting herself out there. Every time a new person comes to Camp Hapla, she's like, maybe this is the person that gets me my quest. Like, it's about her proving herself and going on and it's very self-motivated. I feel like maybe I'm just like, Hyping up my favorite character, but I feel like she is a little more like you you said Luke is weak, and I feel like Annabeth is a good parallel because she's also sort of a Camp Half-Blood authority, and she's not weak.
0: No. Except when they're spiders.
1: <laughs> okay, well, so are you.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: And that's the end of the book. We have Luke's betrayal and his flight from Camp Half-Blood, and then Percy deciding, well, Annabeth deciding she's going to leave. And I thought Percy was going to stay at Camp Half-Blood until Annabeth was like, I'm going to go stay with my dad. I was like, oh, well, then Percy's going to go stay with his mom. He's not going to be here with no friends. And then thinking ahead to the next book, like, are we not going to have Grover in the next book? I feel like that can't be. He's Percy's best friend. I think he'll be back because, you know, this is still, me, it's still a young adult book. I feel like we're not going to lose one of our Trinity characters. But maybe I'm wrong. And I do think and hope that we're going to get a little more flirtationship between Percy and Annabeth, especially now that Luke is not there. The way has been cleared for Percy and Annabeth. <laughs> Tell me what you think.
0: Uh, yeah, for sure. I also hope that, um, especially since they'll be getting older, there will definitely probably be more romance in. 13?
1: Oh, yeah. Puberty.
0: <laughs> the teenage years. <laughs> Also, I just wanted to throw in how at the very end of the book, like the last couple of lines, when Percy responds to Annabeth, because she always calls him seaweed brain, so cute. and he says something like, "Yeah, wise girl," and I literally started laughing <laughs> out loud because Percy, come on, that was pitiful. Like what? Like you need to work on your flirting and wordplay. That was terrible. You can't compare it to seaweed brain. But I just thought that was really funny. Okay.
1: Just, just jumping in there. Since we established in episode one that you would be like a Poseidon child and I would be an Athena child, like I can actually see that conversation happening where I would call you seaweed brain and you'd call me like wise boy or wise girl and you would be like, wow, I am pitiful.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty bad at comebacks. So I could see that. But I would still be able to identify that I was pitiful. Yeah.
1: He's really not. He's really – that. That's not, that's not a comeback. That's not a good flirt either. Like, come on, Percy, Step up either game.
0: Yeah. But anyway, back (laughs) to the book. Um, I definitely, like I said, only remembered very specific things. And I only remember specific things about the rest of the series. So I am really looking forward to rereading the rest of this and rediscovering how everything plays out. Because from this point on, it'll basically be like we're both reading it for the first time because I don't remember much.
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, does that mean you'll do the summary?
0: <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Ugh,
1: I'm worried. My problem is I don't mind doing the summary right now because it does help me track, track the reading. I'm worried that we're going to be so used to do, me doing the summary that by the time we move on to a book I know, I'm just going to keep doing the summary and you're just going to let me. And no, no,
0: no. I need to do the summary because I know God. once I read something that's new, I'm not going to remember.
1: Yeah, it's –
0: Especially it, the crazy fantasy books you're going to have us reading. The they're screen. not
1: that crazy. The next sa- series we're going to read is another mythology series, but a completely different approach. But anyway, I'm not going to spoil it. We've still got four more books of this one to read. But I think that does wrap up The Lightning Thief, right? Yep. I think we've covered everything and I'm ready for the next book.
0: I am too. I cannot wait to start The Sea of Monsters.
1: Great. And we'll be back next week with the first set of chapters on Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters. We'll be reading chapters one through seven for next week. So if you are rereading or reading along with us, read up through there. And like we said, we're figuring out the best pace based on listener feedback. So if you want us to cover things faster or slower, let us know. I yeah. think that, oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> when you fully mess up the script. <laughs> <laughs> My turn to speak. Yes. <laughs> Let us know or just stay in touch with us regarding anything on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at join nerd Party or on Instagram at the nerd Party. And you can find me at Asia Bonilla on Twitter and Asia on Instagram.
1: And you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at C.E. Like we always say, we're a new podcast. Make sure that if you enjoyed this, you rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and of course, check out all the other great podcasts on the Nerd Party Network.
0: Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.